Hey, happy Friday, May 28th, and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you, as always, is Mr. Mark Hamilton of Vancouver, British Columbia, and Mr. Mark Daly with an E because I always get it wrong and I feel terrible. <laughs> Lots going on. We we have a, a weekend off before the next Grand Prix, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a ton of stuff happening in Formula One. We have we have a very sad story to recap tonight as well as some, some decent news and gossip to get to. But right off the top, my friend, I wanted to ask you, how did your boss take the news this week? Uh, which uh, which news was that? That uh, that, that we're, we're going to quit our jobs and do this full time? Exactly. I, I would love to be able to make that uh, do that one of these days, but that day hasn't uh, happened yet. Not in real life yet. In, 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 my, <laughs> in my dreams, it has many, many times. But uh, so far, not quite yet. How, how about how's your week been? So my boss took the news badly. So okay. apparently we were on different pages when we talked about this last <laughs> week. No, I'm joking. It's it's been a busy week, and I I wanted to thank all of our listeners right off the top. We we put out a bit of a, a challenge, uh, maybe not a challenge, but we put out of a, a bit of an ask towards the end of the podcast last week. So one, I'm surprised that most listeners were still listening at the three hour and fifteen minute mark of the podcast. But we had asked that, hey, look, we're we're looking for. Um, greater Twitter interaction. We want to grow our social media presence. And we're just looking for ways to interact with all the people that make this podcast in the associated ecosystem, the community so great. And we picked up, I think my friend in the last couple of days, about 200 users or 200 new followers on, on Twitter. And my commitment was that, Hey, if you're going to make the effort to reach out, we're going to follow back. We're going to, we're going to initiate a conversation. So to all of you that did make the effort to track us down on Twitter and join us, Thank you so much. It's much appreciated. And we had some absolutely amazing dialogue over the last couple of days. We've got great ideas for shows coming forward. Um, asked some great questions, learned a lot about our listeners and what your preferences are. Began to understand that really the giant increase in listenership that we've seen over the last couple of months in the last six months really has really been driven in lots of ways by Generation DTS. But that was really, really exciting. And I think it really encouraged me and excited me to continue to produce content and potentially create more content. And I know you and I, the last couple of days, were talking about doing something a little bit exciting. And I got too excited. I may already have posted the news on Twitter. But for those of you that haven't <laughs> read it, uh, maybe you want to share with the listeners what we're hoping to start doing on non-race weeks. Well, so what we've decided to do on non-race weeks is just to the, the the volume of tweets and emails that we're getting is that they would quickly start to overwhelm the show. So what we're going to do is we're still going to read them like whenever we can, but we're what we're going to do is mailbag Mondays. So what we're going to sit do is we're going to sit down, we go go through the tweets, go through the emails, and just uh, basically turn the the show over to you guys and talk about whatever is on your mind and whatever you guys want to talk about and have a little bit of fun with it and. If um, you're watching this right now on YouTube or listening to the podcast, it, it might be a little bit kind of glitchy. We're, we're trying out a, a new virtual studio setting. So I'm hoping it's going to work out because if it seems to be something that is decent uh, and seems to work, then it's going to go, um, we're, we're going to go with it. And uh, by doing so, when we do, <clears throat> excuse me, the mailbag Mondays, it's actually going to give you guys a chance to actually watch us live, interact with us live. There'll be a chance to send us questions and, and call in and stuff like that. So that's that. That's the idea. Whether or not uh, you know our best intentions work out, uh, that that uh, remains to be seen. At least tonight, 
things might be a little bit glitchy. So if you are watching on YouTube and you just see a logo instead and just audio instead of the usual like full, full video feed, something went wrong. But uh, we'll, we'll make it one way, work one way or another. But uh, we're, we're going to definitely have uh, a little bit of fun with that. Uh, but Mark, hey, enough about uh, this sort of thing. L- let's get to let's let's get to the the, the meat of the show. What, where do you want to start? There is, uh, like you said, there was a, a ton of things going on uh, this week. Tons of uh, things in the news as, as usual. Where where do we start? I think I think without being disingenuous to the rich history of Formula One, I think it's probably a good place to start with Max Mosley. And I think this yes. is probably a headline that a lot of our listeners probably saw this week. And it may have just elicited question marks. You know, who's this guy? Why is he getting yep. so much press? What were his contributions to Formula One and the FIA? And what kind of accomplishments did he create that helped create the current world of Formula One? So I think that's maybe a good place to start. And I don't know if you necessarily want to take this one, but I'm happy to give a quick summary on his background and we can kind of speak at a high level about some of his uh, contributions to the sport. Well, sure. I mean, he was uh, the, the president of uh, the FIA from 93 to 2009. He was uh, Before that, he was uh, a barrister, a lawyer, an amateur racing driver, and the founder and co-owner of uh, March Engineering, which is a, a very famous name in, in, in motorsport. And uh, sadly, uh, Max uh, passed away just a couple of days ago at the age of 81 after uh, fighting uh, with cancer. And I mean, he really was one of those people uh, b- behind the scenes that really did help uh, create what the the, the modern um, version, the, the, the modern shape of uh, Formula One is. So, I mean, uh, obviously, he has not been the uh, uh, the, you know, the the president for some time. I mean, he's reelected in ninety seven, two thousand one, and two thousand and five. And uh, at times, he was a little bit of um, you know a controversial guy. He was uh, he was the one that was uh, he was really involved. In that, uh, you know, the U.S. Grand Prix back in 2005, when uh, you know <laughs> all the Michelin uh, cars had to pull out, we had a, a race of what six cars or something like that. Um, you know, there was also the McLaren spy scandal in uh, 2007, and uh, that was under his watch as well. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, he did help uh, create what you know did have a you know very uh, big influence in creating what Formula One is today. I think you do a really good job of summarizing his background. And I think if there's a couple of words that kind of spring to mind when you talk about Max Mosley, for me, it's he he was a colorful character. He was charismatic. And there was certainly a degree of controversy that followed him around. And, you know, some of that kind of came to light in the 2008s when the tabloids started grabbing onto some stories that we're not going to dig into here. I don't think we need to. And I don't think it's necessarily relevant, yeah. but it helped bring about his downfall because I think in 2009, when he left the FIA, he probably wasn't, he probably wasn't of the mindset that that's where he wanted to his career to go. I don't think he was looking to retire, but ultimately I think his his hand was forced a little bit. But I think for me, if I look back on Max Mosley, he took over the presidency of the FIA right about the time that Bernie had really embedded himself as the lead driver of the commercial rights group, that basically the group that was operating Formula One. And Bernie took Formula One in a whole new direction in terms of commercial capabilities and sponsorship and revenue. And meanwhile, Max Mosley took over the FIA and he helped rapidly evolve Formula One on the track. And I think if you look back at some of his biggest accomplishments, he took over shortly before the... 
the horrendous weekend in 1994 that saw mm-hmm. the sport lose two drivers and one Grand Prix weekend in Art and Senna, um, and of course, Roland Ratzenberger. And I think that was a real catalyst for him to modernize the sport, change the safety of the drivers, change the safety of the cars, change the safety of the track. And so much of the work that he did in the decades following 1994 was about creating runoff areas and getting away from the, some of these more dangerous old tracks and creating, he created a crash standard. There was no prior crash crash standard for formula one cars. And now all formula one cars have to go through crash standards. He, he helped to create massively more fire retardant suits and better helmet specs. Like he did so much to improve the, the safety of the sport. And I think as a, as a clear indication that it worked between 1994 and 2021, we've had one death, one really unfortunate death in the sport, but it would have been so, so much worse. And I think part of this is because back in his racing days, he was surrounded by death. Two of his former driver teammates passed away. One of his close friends passed away. It was death in motorsport was normal. It sounds terrible, but it was normal in the sixties and the seventies. And even in the eighties and the early nineties, it was still common. And I think in 1994, formula one was at this really dangerous inflection point where motorsports globally was cast in a horrendous light. It was incredibly dangerous. The sport didn't care. The manufacturers didn't care. They were willing to sacrifice drivers. At least that was the perception. So while Bernie was driving F1 to new heights in terms of commercialism and revenue and TV deals, he was massively modernizing the sport on the track. And I think he deserves, obviously, a tremendous amount of credit for that. And to to your point, I think two of the more, two of the bigger controversies that maybe he was involved with with respect to Formula One was, of course, the 2005 US Grand Prix. And I think a lot of people see that as him taking out a vendetta against a bunch of teams on the grid, the Michelin teams that were threatening to break away and create their own rival series. And I think he used that as an opportunity to say, hey, we don't need you. All we need is Ferrari and we can build a championship. And almost as a vendetta, as a principal, he ran that event. And then in 2007, of course, uh, it was Spygate and he ultimately ended up finding the McLaren team $100 million. And a lot of folks said that, hey, that's because he had a personal issue or personal vendetta with Ron Dennis, who was operating the McLaren team at that point. But a lot of people also now speculate that he actually wanted to banish McLaren, like kick them out of the sport entirely. And it was only because Bernie convinced him otherwise that they ultimately agreed to that $100 million fine. But for me, I think the biggest thing is, despite some of the controversies in his life, he did so much to modernize and catapult Formula One into the future. And he obviously deserves some degree of recognition for that. Um, But that said, if you do go and Google him, you're going to find some stuff off the track in some of his early life that's uh, maybe a little bit troubling. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, a bit of a complicated uh, figure for sure. Perfectly and uh, certainly it. one that, uh, that uh, you know, we, we have to, uh, to talk about and, and recognize uh, the contributions he did make in a positive way. Okay, so Mark, uh, where do we want to go now? Do we want to dive into the mailbag? Do we want to sort of talk about some mailbag, of the, the, the mailbag, follow-up? Mailbag. mailbag. It's my favorite okay. part of the show. Okay, well, uh, let's go to the very first one. Uh, well, first one um, that we have, I wish we could share this one uh, in its uh, entirety. This, uh, I just want to give a shout out to, to Phil Amato from uh, Australia. He had some wonderful pictures uh, that uh, he shared with us uh, from uh, going back to uh, the, the 1985 Australian Grand Prix that was in, in Adelaide. And, you know, not to throw things in a negative light, but, you know, when it comes to Adelaide, but there are two specific moments that I remember, or I think of when I think when Formula One raced in Adelaide. 
1986, when Nigel Mansell had that huge puncture and blowout that cost him the the, the world championship. And then you know, several years later in the in the mid '90s, when uh, Mika Hakkinen had a big crash that uh, you know very very almost uh, you know could have ended his uh, his career. Excuse me. And it's funny because I was actually just just happened to see something pop up in my uh, my, my YouTube feed not so long ago that actually showed uh, Mika Hakkinen's crash. And uh, you know, we were just talking about like how Max Mosley really drove the uh, the, the safety improvements uh, uh, you know forward in the sport. But when you look at those cars from from 20 years ago, this is pre hands device, pre Halo, obviously, and then also the cockpits, the sides of the cars. I mean, they were so much lower. The drivers were just so exposed, and we see Mika go off the track and crash into the tire barriers. You just see, you know, his head shaking back and forth, and it's just uh, an absolute miracle that uh, he was not, uh, you know, badly, you know, more badly injured. But I mean, he's got some wonderful pictures of uh, of uh, Alan Jones, Patrick Tombay, and a very, very young looking uh, Alan Prost uh, that uh, that he has in a portrait, which is absolutely wonderful. And the picture I like about like Alan Prost is. Uh, when I think of Alain, I mean, even though that he's uh, still involved in Formula One uh, with, with Renault and all that, this is the, those pictures of sort of the the, the mid '90s or sorry, mid '80s. That's uh, what I uh, you know remember Prost as uh, the, the the most wearing those uh, red overalls of uh, you know M- McLaren. Then he went to Ferrari. Of course, he had some time at Williams. I mean, uh, you know, he's a very very successful driver in his own right. I mean, just uh, wonderful. So, you know, once we get this live stream thing down, I could actually share my screen and some of these uh, cool pictures that. Uh, that Phil shared with us. So uh, cheers for that, Phil. Awesome to hear from you. And uh, loved uh, loved all those uh, pictures. Okay, so the next one uh, comes from Brad in Pittsburgh. And uh, he's a Gen DTS. And he wanted, th- this one's actually very interesting. He wanted to know about the usage of supplements and uh, PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs by Formula One drivers. He said, uh, and, and this is a great point, he says, because it's something I've never seen mentioned. And, uh, and he said, as I've heard you guys say before, F1 media coverage tends to be very insular. And he says, it goes on to say, DTS uh, made a lot of drivers physical training and uh, training for reaction times with focus increasing supplements being marketed to everybody from college students to gamers. It seems like it'd be pretty logical that race car drivers may also be taking something to help. You know, honestly, I, th- this one kind of stumped me a little bit. I, I would assume that they would be uh, subject to something similar that you would expect, like, well, you know, may- maybe Olympic level uh, athletes. But, you know, I- I'll be quite honest. This is something I really do not know a lot about. M- maybe you do. Or is this have I'm we subject find- matter expert in performance? OK, there drugs. we go. Okay. <laughs> and it's Personally like, or subjectively? Uh, no comment. <laughs> no comment. Um, but I think it's interesting that a listener from Pittsburgh, which has a strong affiliation to Barry Bonds, who is absolutely the hallmark benchmark of performance enhancing drug usage, would come up with this question. Of course, Barry's kind of intrusion into the world of performance enhancing drugs came after he left the Pirates, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's a, a bitter Pittsburgh listener that uh, wants to ask this question. But all jokes aside, this is a fantastic question. So the, the answer to the question is that neither Formula One nor 
the FIA have any kind of protocols around performance enhancing drugs. Rather, they lean into WADA, which is ultimately the body that governs performance enhancing drug compliance with respect to the Olympics. So there is performance enhancing drug testing. It's incredibly randomized. It doesn't happen for, in some cases, years. But ultimately, any Formula One driver can be tested at almost any time. And there's a story that's kind of been circulating, and I don't know if it's ever been verified, but there's a story indicating that Ricardo was actually tested once at his home on Christmas Day. That story's been making the rounds for many, many years now. But mm-hmm. ultimately, they lean into WADA compliance. So ultimately, drivers can be tested anywhere almost at any time by that body. And ultimately what the what's permissible and in terms of what the punishments are, I'm not totally clear, but I think historically the concerns have been less about the use of additives and performance enhancing supplements, but rather more the concern associated with potentially blood doping and blood transfusions and things like that. But ultimately in the entire time that I've been watching Formula One, I've never seen a positive test at the F1 level or any of the junior formulas where testing's far, yeah. far, far, far more sporadic. Um, but ultimately, it's never been a big issue. That said, the water compliance piece hasn't necessarily been in place that long. And my sense is that when it was implemented, it was more reactionary based on some of the things that we'd seen at the high level of the Olympics and in some of the major North American sports like Major League Baseball and things like that. But absolutely, performance enhancing drugs um, testing does happen. And I think for a lot of the folks that are listening, the question might be like, why would a driver ever even use them? Like, how does it benefit a driver? But ultimately it's more about recovery and endurance. Like if you talk to a lot of the major league baseball players that have taken performance enhancing drugs, sometimes it's about building bulk and building mass. Uh, but a lot of times it's more about how quickly can I recover from an intense Mm -hmm. workout, which is what a race is and what can it do to contribute to my attentiveness when I'm in that vehicle. So it's tested. I don't think there's ever been any high profile uh, positive tests, but it's definitely out there. And that's a fantastic question. So thank you very much to our listener in Pittsburgh for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Brad sums it up uh, very nicely. He says, in a sport where teams will pump ungodly sums of money into designing the rear wings on the razor's edge of regulations to save tenths of seconds, I can't imagine there aren't drivers also trying to push their own performance through any means necessary as well. And I think so, you know, and I'll be honest, I kind of turn a blind eye to this sort of thing because, you know, I'm a big cycling fan and I've been through the whole trauma of that. And, you know, oh. if you ever go in and I don't, you know, I mean, it's up to, to you all, you know, individually and personally, but I was utterly revolted and disgusted just by the whole thought of, uh, you know, blood doping and what that entails and, you know, how they basically remove their own bu- blood out of their bodies. And then they, you know, it, it, you know, infuse it back into themselves at some point in the future it's just uh it's it's frankenstein stuff at uh at, at, at the very best it just uh, it makes my skin crawl but yeah brad awesome uh awesome question and uh I, i'm impressed that you 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 do that one because honestly i was i was taken uh, thrown for a loop on that one anyways uh, let's take a really uh, quick uh, break here and when we come back i want to talk about another one here because this is uh, another great question that i think we should uh talk about we'll do that in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, 
eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. So the next one is uh, from Matt Eminger in uh, in Boston, uh, another Gen DTS uh, convert. He says, I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning of the season. Something I started thinking about after all the strategy conversations that were had in the wake of the qu- extra quick uh, Hamilton stop at the Spanish Grand Prix. It sounds like Merck has a strategy group, but is that just the tip of the iceberg of what goes into racing each week? Uh, what do you think about a sport like American football? You have the head coach, but then you also have coach for offense, defense, positions, scouting the other teams, etc. What exactly does the inner workings of an F1 team look like? I know these teams have a ton of people devoted to building the best car possible, but what else is there? Does Red Bull game plan leading up to each race uh, the way Bill Belichick would uh, for a big game? Does Hamilton have a coach uh, for how to drive on a straightaway and for a different coach for how to drive on the, the tight turns? Is it less complex? Am I just overthinking this? Thanks and definitely keep up the great work on the podcast. Well, Matt, that is an awesome question and basically yes to all of the above i mean what we see on the pit wall and what we see in the garage is just a, a part of um, you know th- this massive m- machine because each uh, circuit has its own uh, unique um, requirements it's going to affect fuel consumption the abrasiveness and the grippiness of the track is also going to affect uh, the uh, the tire degra- uh, degradation and then you're also that was a difficult one to get out degradation there you go and uh, also so other issues. So, of course, uh, Pirelli will announce, uh, you know, well in advance of the Grand Prix, which uh, which tires or compounds they're going to bring. I mean, they have five compounds in their in their range, going from C one at the softest to C five at the at the hardest, or is it the other way around? Anyway, said so they did that a couple of years ago because um, now it's just hard, medium, soft. Uh, before we had hard, medium, soft, super soft, ultra soft, hyper soft. It got really, really uh, confusing when uh, you had all these uh, different compounds. Now it's just uh, three. And then you still have the, the the rule that you know you have to run the hard compound tires in the race as well. The soft uh, compound sometimes referred to as the prime and option tires, and it really is complex. I mean, they look at every single bit of data to the nth degree what's happening in the car, and they know exactly where these drivers are accelerating, where they're braking, and everything that they you know everything that they're that's happening in that car either internally in the car or via the driver that is recorded it's analyzed we talked about it i think uh, just uh, either on sunday night after monaco or last week just the difference uh, between lando and uh, danny ricardo and just uh, some of the different uh, different uh, differences in their driving styles how danny's maybe having a little problem rotating that car through the corners he's not braking as late as lando is and they can pick up all these different things in the telemetry it is a very complex thing and it, you know i think that comparison with football is uh, you know i think it's a brilliant comparison that matt's made because it is uh, it, it's very much the same if you want to think about the head coach 
then the, you could uh, basically uh, you know compare that to the uh, you know the the team principal, the, uh, the 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 driver's race engineer. I guess you could uh, kind of even roll that up into the the offensive and defensive coordinator, looking at uh, at both uh, you know when to attack, when to uh, maybe ease off a little bit uh, because brakes are overheating, fuel consumption, maybe there's some uh, issue internally with the car with the engine. There's so many different things. I know you you look like you're all ready to jump in. So why wouldn't you have it at Mark? I, I was quite frankly, just absorbing everything that you're saying. Because it, was, <laughs> it was a really good analysis. One, I get excited anytime one of our listeners makes a reference or an analogy to North American sports. So this, this listener had me as soon as he dropped Bill Belichick, um, by the way. So that's fantastic. And to all of our new England Patriot fans, I'm sure it was very, very tough to watch Tom Brady go and win a championship uh, this past season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but back to formula one. I think the other consideration too is, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but for every member of the team that a team has at the track for Grand Prix weekend, they have many times more people back at the factory actively monitoring everything that's happening at the track. So think about think about NASA. You know, you've got that spaceship that's going up and you have mission control back in Houston, which I think is probably more of a stereotype than anything, but you've got that concept of a mission control and you have all of these engineers sitting there and they're just monitoring every imaginable type of data. Formula One is exactly the same thing. A lot of the strategies that the teams deploy at the track aren't being constructed by a team of race engineers or the team principal that are present physically at the racetrack. Those those calls are happening. And it's kind of like football where you have the offensive and the defensive coordinator. And oftentimes they're way up in the rafters sitting at a box looking down on the field surrounded by all this data. In Formula One, it's very much the same where you have this concept of emission control back at the factory, and they're just receiving this stream of real-time on-demand data, and they're doing real-time models and projections to help guide the decision-making that's happening at the track. So a lot of the decisions that are being made, whether it's tire changes, whether it's race strategy, whether it's to um, enact team orders, a lot of that decision-making is being driven by data back at the factory, not necessarily even by the personnel that's at the track. And not not to undermine or kind of suggest that the value that they add isn't important, but ultimately yeah. Formula One teams get data from all kinds of different places. And the number of people that they use to ingest this data and create modeled projections on what decisions need to be made is too great for the capacity that they have at the track and just too costly. So they leave a group of those engineers back at the factory who monitor in real time. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm glad that you brought up that uh, mission control thing because uh, a couple of years ago for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 uh, landing, there was this really cool podcast that was put out uh, by BBC called 13 Minutes to the Moon. And it basically, the whole series goes through, I mean, it tells a whole story about, uh, you know, the whole race, uh, the, the space race and everything like that. But it tells different uh, uh, different parts of the stories and they, they talk, they have a lot of the, the audio. And so it's really interesting because when they're making that descent to the moon, you hear all like the the flight controller and all the different engineers and stuff, and then you know the, you you hear them calling out these errors in the cockpit on the, the the lunar lander, and so they have this one main loop, but also each person that's sitting at a console and mission control has a team very much like in Formula One in in the background somewhere. 
So, you know, you can, they also had these secondary audio feeds where, you know, they had like a question from the flight controller to the specific, um, you know, um, you know, engineer to, you know, for, for whatever specific reason it was. And then they had these sort of secondary loops where he would be asking his team, okay, I need an answer. Is this a problem? This is a go, a no go. And it, it, it's fascinating how Formula One is almost like a you know, combination of what you would see in a football game and also at uh, mission control for, you know, like for, for NASA or SpaceX. It, it is really, it, it is really, really cool. And this sort of like really segues nicely into another uh, email that we got from Joel Plourd in Ottawa. And uh, he had a really, really uh, cool long email. But one thing that really uh, uh, you know stood out for me is his second point. It says, in most uh, sports, coaches and GMs get fired if they don't perform. In F1, the team principal are there for almost as long as they want to be. No one ever gets fired or even has the pressure from the media. Like, how has Gene Haas not fired Gunther Steiner already? Seriously, Gunther would have been gone after my first season owning that team. Also, why is Christian Horner not caught for more heat? How he's treated uh, Red Bull number uh, second seat like a revolving door? And he's got some uh, great, uh, great points uh, like that. And th- that is very, very true. I mean, I guess the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball is a little bit different because you know you're the, the seasons are so long, right? But if you look at say the the NFL, where you have like 16 regular season games plus playoffs and preseason, well, I mean preseasons, preseason, right? But anyways, you got 16 games to to, to make it to the playoffs or get a wild card. But, you know, you lose three or four games in a row in the NFL, and that's basically your season done. So, I mean, <laughs> patience wears really, really thin in the upper management and uh, you know, and, and, and ownership. And Formula One is, is, is very, very different. You know, I mean, I think he makes a, a great point about like uh, Gunther Steiner and Gene Haas. I think a little bit more that uh, that, situ- uh, that situation is a little bit different because I think that Gene is a little bit kind of a hands-off owner and he's basically downloaded and delegated that responsibility ability uh, to to Gene, but uh, I, I mean it's a great point uh, that that he makes, especially about well, why does Christian not get uh, a lot of heat about this revolving door that they have for the second seat uh, at Red Bull that we've seen over the you know, like the last several years? I mean that that's a great point, but again, uh, you know it it is just I guess the uniqueness itself of uh, Formula One and just uh, w- what makes sense to us is like okay, well you your team has been dead last in the in, in the constructors championship for five years. Well, you know, why wouldn't somebody be out on their, you know, uh, out on their butt because uh, they they haven't performed? But I guess expectations at a team like Williams or Haas is a lot less than a team like uh, Ferrari or Mercedes. And, uh, you know, and and that's just one of the weird nuances of Formula One. The dangerous analogy to drive or to drive. I was going to say drive, but that's a terrible pun. The the dangerous (laughs) analogy to draw with respect to North American sports is to compare a team principal to a head coach or a manager of a baseball team or a European football team. A team principal is probably better compared to a president of one of those organizations. And I think from a skill set perspective, one, there aren't a lot of people in the world of motorsports that have the necessary skill set to manage a Formula One operation. You're talking about somebody that has to have exceptional technical en- uh, expertise, has a background oftentimes in engineering, has to have a really, really, really strong and charismatic marketing side because you have to be able to sell this team to sponsors. I, I think 
you typically have to have a really strong knowledge of motorsport and a past experience. Like it's a very, very, very specific skill set. So one, as easy as it might be to say, hey, you need to fire Gunther Steiner, finding his replacement is going to be incredibly challenging. And I think we've seen that throughout the history of Formula One. I think the other thing to consider too is oftentimes teams are content making money as opposed to winning races. Um, and th- sometimes I think the thought of, hey, we have a team principal. We made $50 million last year. We could fire him, go through that entire challenging process of onboarding somebody new and bringing in his own leadership team or her own leadership team, building a new culture within the factory. And maybe that's more disruptive than it is helpful. And maybe we actually Mm -hmm. risk our position. We risk that profitability. So I think sometimes the teams are just very, very, very conservative. And then the two other considerations are, one, team principals often have an ownership stake in the teams, which isn't uncommon and hasn't been uncommon yeah. throughout the history of motorsport. Like you look at Toto Wolf, he's not going anywhere until he's ready to go because he owns a big chunk of that team. And that's not uncommon. And then I think the other thing too is some of the teams that have a team principal that should obviously be in a different role simply don't want to make that move because of finances. And I love that Haas comparison. At the end of the day, I think if that team was more flush with cash, they would probably make that move. But ultimately, Gunther Steiner's in a position where if he was terminated right now, they're obligated to pay out the balance of his contract and start paying somebody else new. And the reality is, if I'm Haas, who am I going to attract to that role? It's not an attractive role. And if I am going to attract somebody, I'm going to have to pay like crazy to make it a compelling option for them to adopt. So I think ultimately to kind of just recap, I think the best analogy of a team principal is more like the president of an NBA or an NFL or a major league baseball team has to have a whole myriad of different amazing skill sets. I don't think there's a lot of people like that in the world. And I think sometimes teams are content to make money as opposed to win races. And if they're making money, you know what, why go through that disruption of changing the team principle without any guarantee that results would improve anyway? So I think there's a whole bunch of different reasons, but it's a great question. Yeah, it's it's very much like a professional cycling when you see some of these teams that have riders that uh, you know they're smaller teams and uh, you have uh, cyclists in there that don't have uh, you know hope of uh, you know winning the general th- classification, you know uh, the the yellow jersey or the Mayo, uh, sorry the uh, the Baglia Ro- uh, Rosa in the uh, the Giro, but sometimes what you do is these lesser teams they'll throw their riders out in the breakaway because they're going to be out there for for two hours or something like that. So being in the breakaway, they're going to get a lot of uh, camera time. They're going to get camera time for their sponsors and you know on certain days you know the, the breakaway works and they're actually able to to, to win a stage and then that's just a good press uh, all the way around hey mark uh, time for another break here and when we come back uh, we'll start uh, diving into some of the news and uh, there certainly is a lot of it so don't go away we'll be back in uh, just a moment All right. Well, welcome back to the show, Mark. After Max Verstappen's very impressive win at uh, Monaco last weekend, Dr. Helmut Marko, the Red Bull Motorsport Advisor, believes that Max has reached what he calls a different level of maturity. Now, I think this is a very, very interesting comment from Marko, because if you kind of just rewind it a couple of years when Max had that uh, that shunt in, uh, what was it, an FP3, and then he damaged his car very much uh, like we saw with uh, Charles Leclerc, but uh, he didn't actually get on the track to, to uh, for, for qualifying. That for me was, uh, I guess that was in 2018 now, but that's when Max had that real 
I, I think time that he needed to to go away and uh, get his head on straight because he had a couple of weeks went to Canada. He came on his own without his dad or his entourage, and that's I think one of those sort of watershed moments. So you know, fast forward three years, and uh, you know Max wins this race. He didn't put a foot wrong all weekend, and it was just I, I think just the, the the synergy between 2018 or the comparison between 2018 and 2021, and Max then and Max now, and just the different places that he is in his career is just a really quite uh, it's really black and white i mean obviously he's still a young driver 22 now i guess but uh, i mean the way that he's uh, he's matured in those uh, you know in those interim years is really quite impressive and i agree with uh, with what marco said i i think he did show and did display and has reached a different level of uh, maturity because i thought that was a very impressive drive last weekend to be clear i think it's really important for the listeners to understand that the criticisms of Max in the past in terms of being immature versus being mature, it's never been a question necessarily of his off-track conduct. It kind no, of his time absolutely not. Track. Like, this is a guy who's dialed in and focused on F1 24-7. Yeah. I, can't, I can't believe he has friends or a girlfriend or a hobby. Like, <laughs> I imagine he goes home to his house and the entire house is barren except that he sleeps in a Formula One racing bed. Like That's kind of what I imagine his place to be like. And then he has a fridge with water and that's it. But I think the criticism in the past has been more about his conduct on the track. And I look yeah. at... Historically, this is kind of the prototypical immature Verstappen weekend. He gets into a heated moment on the track that spills into comments or an altercation off the track. And you look at the contact that he had with Ocon a few years ago. And then I always look back to Mexico in 2019. This was a race where he put in a blistering fast time in qualifying. He should have qualified on pole, but he then flagrantly flagrantly ignores yellow flags, which came out because of a Bottas incident, loses pole, and then in the race, he gets into an early altercation with Hamilton and then makes a terrible move on Bottas, clips Bottas's front wing, gets a tire puncture, throws his race away, and then all weekend in the media, he's just spewing hatred of everyone around him. That's the kind of thing that we're not seeing from him now. But that said, we also haven't seen an opportunity for that side of Max to come out. There hasn't been any ugly contact. He's been very successful. And the car has been supremely reliable because that's another thing that's been really challenging for Max in the past is not only some of his trans- mistransgressions, I don't think that's the word, but some of his transgressions on the track, that contact and that that conflict with other drivers, but he's also been really, really cursed with a car that has proven to be very unreliable. And we talked about how unreliable last year's car was, but this year, the whole package seems good. The car's really reliable. He's not getting into ugly tangles with other drivers, but what I'm very curious to see is it's only a matter of time. There's going to be contact. There's going to be an incident. And for me, it's more about how does he respond to that? Does he put his head down and keep racing? And then how does he respond to that off the track? Does he take ownership? Does he brush it aside? Does he move on? That's what I want to see. But early, like the early returns are really good. And I'm all in on Max right now. Like I'm buying Max for Stapp and stock. And that's probably the first time in my career, despite how supremely capable he's always been. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was uh, you know so important that you pointed out that when the the remarks about maturity are completely to do with his on the track uh, and and his evolution as a driver, because I mean, there's never been anything uh, that, that at least that we're aware of that uh, that he's done off the track that if uh, you know <laughs> needed to be dragged into the, uh, the the limelight and he's needed to have his wrist uh, slapped for. I mean, we have to remember that when he came into Formula One, he was very very young, and we we've basically watched him grow up 
literally as a person and as a driver in front of our eyes. And I mean, it was pretty apparent right from the beginning that uh, when he was with Taro Rosso, that he was a supremely talented young man in, in that car. And it, it was, uh, it, that's why I think it was fascinating when they did the whole switcheroo and sent Danny Kvyat down to back down to Toro Rosso and then put uh, Max into the Red Bull in 2016 and then he goes out wins that first race at uh, at, at Barcelona which was it was like a Cinderella story right yeah. but a lot of the things that we've seen was you know th- th- this is Max you know he didn't have like a, you know all this extended time to go through a lot of the, like the junior formulas and kind of like uh, develop his racecraft and and grow as a driver i mean he was thrust into formula 1 at a very very early age and i mean when we look at him now he's he's a veteran driver i mean he's got dozens and dozens of grand prix under his belt and uh, you know, we've been talking about him as a legitimate uh, you know uh, or a potential world champion at at some point if he gets the right uh, package underneath him and he's still only in his early 20s so i think it was uh, it was an interesting comment by uh, dr helmet marco and uh, i think that uh, you know he is starting to put all the pieces uh, together and i mean the thing is that if uh, max has that uh, competitive car and he stays uh, you know focused I mean, the thing is, if Lewis decides to hang it up, I mean, where could we be 10, 12, 15 years from now when Lewis, or sorry, when, when Max Verstappen is uh, Lewis's age, you know, we could be, we could be here in 15 years talking about, well, maybe uh, this is the year that Max blows away the rest of Lewis Hamilton's record. I mean, it is very, very possible. I mean, he still has to win it all, but I mean, he's starting to look like he's putting all the pieces together and that potential of uh, becoming a world champion, it, it seems more realistic. It seems more legit now than it did even say a year ago. I think the other important thing to add, because I think it's good insight and great context for our listeners, is that this 23-year-old driver with 100 Grand Prix under his belt, he grew up in Formula One. His his upbringing is yeah. very, very different than a Jensen Button or a Lewis Hamilton or Daniel Ricciardo. His <sighs> father, Jos Verstappen, was a Formula One driver. So he was born in 1997. His father was in the sport. He spent his entire life around the sport. He was karting at the age of four. And if you know anything about his dad, and I kind of don't want to go down that pathway, is his dad is understood to be fiercely driven, fiercely strict. I don't want to suggest abusive, but that's often been the criticism of his father. So he grew up in this very one track strict household where you are going to be a Formula One driver and you are going to be a world champion. And I don't think he was ever allowed the opportunity to have distractions. So that's kind of his upbringing. And you look at Lewis Hamilton or Jensen Button, a lot of the a lot of the criticisms of them when they were in the sport early on was that they were party boys. Like the criticism of them Mm -hmm. wasn't so much what was happening on the track, but that they had these very colorful social lives. They were getting in trouble off the track. They were party boys. They were drink. I don't want to suggest they were drinking, but Jensen Button for sure was drinking a lot. And I think he has knowledge that, but they were very active off the track and they would get into a little bit of trouble here or there. So that was the criticism of them. Whereas the maturity situation with Max was more about how he responded to incidents on the track and how those incidents happen to begin with. But I think you're absolutely right. It seems like everything's coming together. And you think this is a guy who's 30 years old because he's been in Formula One. This is what his sixth full championship in Formula One. He's 23, man. Like, dude, I don't even know if I was doing my own laundry at 23, yet alone leading a (laughs) world championship in Formula One. It's crazy. 
Oh, I know. It, you know talk about uh, two completely uh, different worlds or uh, paths that will never cross one another. I mean, when I think what I was doing when I was 16 or 17 and, you know, where I was in my early 20s, I mean, I would probably be, you know, you know I, I think I identify more with the party boy uh, image than, uh, you know, the, the, the really sort of strict kind of dialed in focused uh, person. So, I mean, it, it really is. It's one of those things uh, that, you know, you really have to give everything if you're you're fortunate enough to be in that situation i mean you have to be so focused on it and you know i, I can honestly say that uh, i did actually see jos verstappen race at uh, the nuremberg ring back in 2001 which i guess that would have been TW, uh, twr arrows back then you know the black and orange uh, cars so i haven't seen max race in person yet but i've seen the old man race so it'd be kind of cool uh, to see because you know last time i went to a, a grand prix was 2014 so you know i need to see i got to say that i've seen both generations of the Verstappen's race, so that Sorry, would uh, was that be, 2001, be kind of cool. You said 2001 European Grand Prix at the uh, at the Nurburgring. That was uh, the very first Grand Prix that I ever went to. Peak Schumacher Schumi mania at uh, right. you know it was it was wonderful. I mean, it was just uh, it was it was cool to soak up the atmosphere because the entire Nurburgring was just uh, it was it was scarlet. Uh, it was all Ferrari. There were flags everywhere smoke bombs going off i mean it was like being at monza without being at monza it was uh, it was really really uh, really cool if anybody's interested Any- before we move on to yep. the next point i just have this up in front of me so i thought it'd be interesting to share jos verstappen two podium finishes back to back in 1994 he had no yep. further podiums for the rest of his career and that race you're at and i'm sure you remember that this of retirement yeah, you know, because uh, I was living in Holland at the time, and we went with about a, a group of ten of us. You know, we—I think we were about the uh, the only Dutch guys sitting in that uh, entire stand of. Uh, well, I mean, they were all Schumacher fans. Uh, that was uh, one thing. I don't know if they were all German necessarily, but all Schumacher fans. And yeah, we we were disappointed, even though we knew that uh, Jos didn't really have uh, much of a hope of uh, putting in a good result. But uh, it was still still very very cool. Hey, sticking with uh, Doctor Helmut Marco, he believes that uh, that uh, the uh, Red Bull still need to keep up the pressure on them. Mercedes said because he says quote it shows when the pressure is there you make mistakes but also means we have to keep up the pressure and put as much pressure as possible on both cars Uh, and now a third brand is added to with Ferrari it is good for the spectators and even harder work for us end quote okay uh, certainly you know they got to keep up the pressure on uh, Mercedes I think he's being a little bit too generous throwing Ferrari into the mix because certainly they had a a very good weekend at uh, at Monaco whether or not uh, we'll see that again at Baku next weekend and throughout the rest of the season remains to be seen but sure i mean this is the one thing not only is lewis not used to really having to say oh fight for 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 race uh, victories but also i don't think that uh, mercedes is necessarily uh, used to I, you know they're, they're used to the competition you know inside of the team especially going back to hamilton and rossberg so i mean they're used to that competition internally but i think now when you have it externally We've seen some uh, mistakes uh, happen. I mean, you know that that whole uh, saga with the uh, poor old Valtteri Bottas last week. You know, stripping the wheel nut on there on the wheel. And I thought it was very, you know, quite something to see those pictures of them still trying to get the wheel off back at the factory once uh, <laughs> you know they were long gone from from Monaco, but. He is absolutely, uh, you know, you know, he's spot on there. They need to keep that pressure on and and keep uh, pushing the Mercedes because the more you're you're you know, operating at the edge is the opportunity to to go wrong. Because I think that Total Wolf did acknowledge this uh, week that uh, it wasn't all down to the mechanic getting the um, you know the the air wrench on there on a little bit skew and then stripping the uh, you know the threads off of that uh, that wheel nut. But I believe that uh, that Bottas also stopped slightly behind his mark. So there were a couple of 
of things going on there. There was more factors uh, than just the, you know, the, the the poor old mechanic, but it just shows that when you're 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 pushing and you're right at the edge, things can happen, and it doesn't always go your way, even if you're Mercedes. I think now is absolutely the time. And you know, I was quietly scrolling through our Twitter DMs in the background because we actually had two different listeners reach out this week from Mexico, which is super, super exciting. Um, and it kind of speaks to the excitement that there is in that country for Formula One. It looks like we're going back to Mexico City this year because we didn't go last year. Mexico is a huge, huge, huge motorsports hotbed, and they're absolutely fanatic for Sergio Perez. But one of the things that I promised that we talk about on this show to both both of these listeners was was Sergio Perez and what he needs to be do to be successful in in Baku where to be honest he's been successful in the past but I think ultimately and we've talked about this a lot that for Red Bull to continue to apply pressure to Mercedes especially if Mercedes is going to commit these super uber costly mistakes like that mistake in the pit cost them what 15 16 18 championship points is you need to capitalize on both of your drives and that's that Max and Max is going to compete for race wins every single week just because he's got the package and that's the caliber of the car he has I think the differentiating factor and we've talked about this so much is ultimately going to be Sergio Perez ultimately Max is going to go and fight his battle to be the world drivers championship our champion, but ultimately for Red Bull to win the constructors, which is the second championship, although of course it's of equal value, is that they need Sergio to be as effective as possible. And I think there was some early criticism of Sergio. And I think a lot of us were like, well, you know what? Part of this is just a lack of familiarity with the car. It's a completely different concept. It's a different rake. It's a different power unit. There's a lot to become accustomed to. He put in a fifth place finish in Bahrain, disappointing finish in Italy, slightly better in Portugal, a little soft in Spain, but a reasonably strong drive in Monaco, at least in terms of where he finished in the points. His pace now, unfortunately, is still miles and miles away from Max. But I think when it comes to applying pressure to Mercedes, you know, Mercedes will make mistakes. They maybe don't make any mistakes, but ultimately the one factor that is within your control is the performance of Sergio Mm -hmm. Perez. And if you can tighten that gap, that delta between Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, that puts an immense amount of pressure on Mercedes. And I think if they can continue to push Perez forward and he becomes more familiar with the car and they can continue to dial in the settings. I think he's going to be a, I think it's going to be a very, very different championship than we've seen the past couple of years. But ultimately I think for them to apply pressure, they can't sit back and hope that Mercedes makes mistakes because all teams make mistakes, but it's unlikely that that type of mistake is going to happen again. I mean, we've never seen that in formula one before. I think if you're going to apply pressure, it's going to be on the track and it's going to have to come from Sergio Perez, because I don't think there's a lot more that Max Verstappen can do having finished first or second in the first five races of the season. Yeah, I don't think you could really ask more of Max if you're Red Bull. I mean, he's delivering, um, you know, absolutely everything that he can at the moment. And you're dead right. I mean, that's they have to find some way to get to Sergio right into that, uh, you know, into that Goldilocks zone where everything's just right and uh, he's uh, 100% comfortable in that car. And I think, in fairness, uh, where he kind of uh, struggled a, a little bit at varying degrees through those first four races. I think that uh, by and large, he really made up for it in uh, in Monaco last week. And I mean, it's going to be really interesting to watch the next two months. I mean, we're going to go through a whole bunch of races uh, between now and the summer break at the beginning of August. 
So by the time we get to Hungary at the end of the July, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the Sergio Perez story writes itself over these next uh, eight or nine weeks or so. And ultimately where the where the championship goes, because I mean, we're going to put a lot of miles down between now and, and the summer break. And we'll have a really good idea of where the championship is, is heading, both in the drivers, both in the in the constructors and certainly where a lot of these uh, different drivers are. And potentially we will have some more fodder maybe a little bit more of a you know a better feel of what might happen in in terms of uh, the the driver's market for next year as well the only other thing i would add as well just because i promised to give a little bit of color commentary about what sergio needs to do to be successful in baku and i know i'll forget if i don't talk about this right now is his driving style is is a little bit different than other drivers on the circuit. He he tends to break a little bit earlier and where a lot of drivers turn in very sharply on the corners, which causes a great deal of tire degradation and wear, he tends to break yep. a little bit earlier and take a wider, more circular approach to corners. The challenge with Baku is a lot of those corners are very, very, very sharp and you don't necessarily have the opportunity to do that. You have to maneuver them very sharply. So you have to become comfortable uh, basically accelerating well on the brakes to rotate the back end of that car to make a, a turn as quickly as possible. I think where that track is going to potentially benefit him is it's a track with a very, very, very long straightaway. And the current wing configuration on that car will certainly play into play into Red Bull's hands for the lack of a better cliche. And I know we're going to speak about that in a couple of minutes, but I think he's going to really have to be effective in the corners and change his driving style a little bit to be successful in Baku. Now that said, and you know, I'm just looking at his historical results. He's typically done quite well in Baku. So there's nothing to suggest he couldn't be successful there once again. Well, especially if he's starting to feel more at home in that uh, Red Bull, then uh, this would be a race that uh, he'll certainly know himself that he's uh, been successful at uh, over the past uh, several years. And uh, hopefully uh, one uh, for, for Checo and his fans that he's uh, going to do well at. Yeah, well, you know, just uh, why, why don't we just take a, a quick break? Uh, there, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, Mercedes and what happened last weekend. I do want to talk about the bendy wings, which you so uh, you know nicely hinted at already, because that's going to be a thing next week as well. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show, and uh, you're listening and watching to Mark and Mark Thing One and Thing Two. I'll let you guys figure out which one it is. Don't don't you don't you, Doctor Seuss? I mean, you, you've got kids. I mean, you you should be aware of Cat in the Hat and Thing One and Thing Two. I mean. Uh, well, anyways, let, let, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, Mercedes thought that uh, Lewis Hamilton's uh, strategy in Monaco last weekend had uh, much what they call bigger potential. And uh, they, they actually, it worked out completely contrary. And uh, actually, it, it did backfire compared to what they, um, you know, what, what they really planned, what they really wanted to accomplish during the race. And this kind of goes back to what uh, I, I've mentioned several times. Uh, you know, I, I think we talked about it last week. I've mentioned on the show before that for Mercedes, things usually go well, but when it goes wrong, it seems to go really wrong. 
Your thoughts? I completely agree. I just I look back to the German Grand Prix in 2019, and I know a lot of our, oh, perfect example. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I know a lot of our listeners may not be familiar, or perhaps weren't watching then, but that was a particularly special event because 2018 was the first season that Netflix covered Formula One, and both Mercedes and Formula One opted out. So if you ever go back to watch season one of Drive to Survive, and you're wondering like where's Ferrari and Mercedes, they had both made calculated decisions not to participate because they didn't want to give an edge up to the other team by participating and potentially becoming distracted. So in 2019, uh, Mercedes elected to be a participant, but the one weekend they were giving access to the team was the German Grand Prix, their home, technically their home Grand Prix from a from a manufacturer perspective, even though they're based in the UK. And the weekend was just a total disaster. They were wearing special livery, their engineers and mechanics were wearing special uniforms, and it couldn't have gone wrong. So it is kind of funny that when it does go wrong, and even last year, if you look at Bahrain, like that was just a Mm -hmm. terrible race day. Like Everything seemed to fall apart for them, and ultimately the consequences in terms of accumulating constructors championship points were terrible but you're absolutely right in the sense that when things go wrong it seems to be everything but i think the bigger story is they typically regroup really 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 effectively and if you look at the past mm-hmm. six or seven years even if it's at the driver level so not necessarily a strategy call or a pit issue maybe it's just hamilton's had a bad race historically he's always won these the, the next race so i think this team shows a great deal of fortitude i think that if they want to be competitive this year and win another two championships they just can't afford the mistakes that they made this past weekend whether from a strategy perspective with hamilton or with the pit mm-hmm. errors that we saw with uh, valtteri bottas yeah and, and that's the thing i mean you touched on so nicely that uh, they, they are very resilient and that's going to be one thing that we have to watch out for in baku next week is just how do they bounce back because if you go back and watch that uh, season two of DTS and you watch that episode specifically about uh, Hockenheim and the German Grand Prix and just have how much of a disaster it was, I, th- I thought it was uh, it was really interesting because you get that sort of fly in the wall perspective with Toto and Lewis. You know, they're, they're talking in the motorhome afterwards. You can tell Lewis is just so upset about the whole thing because, I mean, he had an off on the track. Bottas went off. I mean, everybody did at one point, but uh, for, for them, it was just it was just really, really embarrassing because, like you say, it was this historic race. They they for them, uh, they, uh, they they just went all out to you know to to really celebrate that, and then it just became a weekend to forget rather than a weekend uh, to remember. And I should uh, mention, I should show it to you sometime. There was uh, some uh, special um, souvenir artwork that they uh, uh, they released uh, for that weekend. I bought myself. It's kind of like this retro uh, Mercedes. Uh, it's like a race poster and uh, it's cool. I just need to get uh, get it framed and, and hung up on the wall. I'll, I'll have to uh, dig it out. It's, it's, it's really, really super cool. It's just, it's all nicely rolled up and I'm afraid to get, uh, you know, greasy dirty fingers on it but uh that's definitely something that needs to get uh you know taken out framed and hung up on the wall there because it was a uh, super cool I'll just i want to add one thing to that too the sure. German grand prix in 2019 valtteri bottas crashed he hit some white paint and lost all traction in the wet which is which yep. is just the, a death a death story in formula one to hit that paint when the track is wet there's no traction at all he spun and completely demolished his car hamilton had a couple of incidents went off the track i think there was a penalty because he went around a cone to get into the pits um he finished ninth so they picked up a couple of points there max verstappen won that race so it's funny that whenever yes, whenever yeah. mercedes has a bad weekend who's there to pick up those points it is <laughs> and always has been max verstappen 
Yeah, definitely over the last couple of years, right? You know, Hockenheim is another, uh, you know, kind of interesting track. I must admit that I wasn't really a fan of the way that they kind of like uh, chopped down all the trees and they did the, you know, this sort of revamped uh, <clears throat> circuit on what used to be the the infield there. But it, it's, it's interesting because I went there years ago to watch a, a DTM race. Mm. And we were sitting right across from the pits there at start finish. And it was really interesting because we, we were just a little bit kind of towards the, the one end of the, the grandstand. I mean, they're much expanded, much bigger now, but you could see them coming down out of the forest. And then they go into that stadium section, into that really tight left and then a right hander or right hander, left hander. And then they come around onto the pit straight. And then you see them go around where famously Ralph Schumacher launched himself into the air a number of years ago. And then they would disappear into the forest for another couple of minutes and they come back so from from a spectator point of view it, it wasn't i you know it wasn't I, an ideal race to, to watch because they would sort of disappear i can imagine now if you're sitting there there'd be more opportunities uh, to you know to see them but i was just um, i don't know i have a thing for like uh, you know the historical layouts of tracks and things like that so i mean i i kind of like appreciate why they did it on one hand but I didn't like changing the uh, the, the historical layout. Given you but have this from a unique perspective, because you've been to Nurburgring and Hockenheim, which uh, perfect conditions? What is the best track to watch a Formula One race as a spectator? Less so about what's necessarily happening on the track. What is the best track from a from a, a spectator engagement perspective? Hockenheim, I think, is easier to access because it's literally right next to the Autobahn. Mm. So, I mean, it's really access-wise, it's easy to get to, whereas Nürburgring is in the middle of the Eiffel Mountains, and we were staying in a hotel in Bonn. So we'd have to drive out, and it's basically a two-lane road. So you get thousands of cars and people going in on race day, and it's just literally one big long snake of cars. And then once you get there into like the town of uh, you know where, where the Nur- where the, the Nurburgring Ring is, and you see the Schloss Nurburg and everything. I mean, it's a really really beautiful, cool place. Where we were sitting was at the bottom of the track, the lowest point at the the, the hairpin, which I think they used to call the Dunlop Corner, and that that was really cool because you could see the. Tra- the cars coming down the hill into the hairpin so you get to see you know that um you, the, the real contrast the cars coming down the hill breaking slow through the hairpin and then they you know they, they'd hammer it go up the hill into a very fast left-hander so from uh, you know for, for actually watching it like that that hairpin hairpin at the Nürburgring is uh first class so i mean for watching at the at hockenheim i'm sure it's greatly improved because you know my memories now are almost 20 years old but i i think that uh, you know the way that the track is now in its in, in its modern configuration there are definitely better places where you can get more um, you know places to 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 watch the one thing that's different is compared to the Nürburgring, hockenheim is fairly flat and uh, that that's one nice thing about the 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 Nürburgring is that there's this real change in terrain so you really get to see these cars perform and go through you know work going down the hill up the hill and everything uh, in between whereas the Nürburgring it's not quite uh, you know a pool table but it's like uh, you know there really isn't too much delta and elevation as you go around the lap there but you know they're they're both kind of cool places uh, to go 
All right. Uh, th- this one, before we go into the, you know another break here, Mark, Hamilton says he's grateful for what he called crappy days <laughs> like he had at Monaco to learn from. And I find this interesting from you know, coming from the mouth of a guy that's a seven-time world champion, basically owns all the records in, in, in Formula One. You know, he's in his mid-30s. He's been there, done that. He's got the t-shirts. He's got the videos. He's got the, you know, the souvenir teaspoon and all that. That even at that age and at that this point in his career that he, he can take... Uh, you know, you know, a knock on the chin like he did at Monaco with that. It wasn't a great result for him. It was a terrible qualifying and still say that, you know, that's there, there's an opportunity to learn something from that. What, what do you think? It's funny because his comments now seem quite starkly different to the comments that he made on race day. And, you know, you and I talked a little bit about this on Sunday that he was very pointed in his criticism of the team the day of the race, you know, after the race had concluded. And that's a little bit unique yep. for Hamilton because he's typically one who credits the entire team with victories. He, he'll he credit the factory, the engineers, you know, it's a team effort, it's a team effort, which is really nice to see. But it was a little bit unusual for him to make such pointed I don't want to say attacks, but make such pointed criticisms of the team because ultimately there was for sure some team failure in terms of strategy. It wasn't the strategy he was expecting. Obviously, there was a, a miscue potentially with the Bottas situation and the gun taking the fins at an angle and shaving them off. Like there, there was a lot of things that went wrong, but his 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 comments following the race seemed a little bit off to me. And even and I shared this during that last podcast. He made that comment on on Instagram about hey some days something, something, something. I'm not going to say it on the air. Like it seemed really <laughs> off. And I was like, I don't, none of that feels good. So it's interesting that his, his commentaries changed a little bit and he's being a little bit more, I don't know, progressive in his perspective. Like, Hey, it's a great opportunity to learn, but ultimately I think what's learned or what's taken away from this race will be shown on the track when we go to Baku. And I think historically, one of the things Lewis has been really good at is turning a bad result into a very, very, very good result. And I mean, historically, if you look at some of his tougher performances over the last couple of years, his subsequent race is always a good one. So you look at 2019, he finished Mm -hmm. seventh in Brazil. He won in Abu Dhabi. You know what? In 2018, he had a retirement in Austria. He finishes second in Great Britain and then first in Germany and First in Hungary, he has a tendency to rebound very, very effectively. And partly that's probably team contributions, but also partly his own psychological fortitude. But it'll be interesting to see. And they're nice comments. They're refreshing relative to what I think we heard from him on Sunday, which as a fan, I was really disappointed by. But I think ultimately what mm-hmm. happens in Baku will be the true, the true recognition of what he did or didn't learn from, from Monaco. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it is interesting to see him when uh, when he does lash out like that. Uh, you know, certainly it's uh, it must be a little bit demoralizing within the team. And I, I had to kind totally. of wonder if this was maybe a little bit of um, maybe walking back some of those comments exactly. that were kind of made in, in the heat of the moment when he was upset so that everything went as bad as it did. I mean... Not only was a disastrous result for him, but I mean, Valtteri had a bad, bad day. And by the time it was all uh, over, they had egg on their face and Max isn't leading in the, the, the drivers, Red Bull's leading the constructors. So it really was uh, one of those weekends they want to and forget. I mean, but that's, uh, sorry, no, go ahead. Say, and the, the consequence of that weekend is the entire narrative of the season changes, right? And if the narrative changes, mm-hmm. the pressure changes. It's one thing to be leading a championship and to be able to start building a cushion over the course of the next 15 to 20 races. It's very, very different when all of a sudden you're on the back foot. And I think 
the consequence of the race conclusion on Sunday was this realization that really for the first time in the last four or five years, we're on the back foot mm-hmm. and there's no clear yep. pathway forward in terms of, Hey, we've got a, a, a series of easy races or, Hey, you know what? We know we've got an upgrade coming. That's going to take us to another level from a performance perspective. There's no obvious change coming. That's going to catapult them forward. And what they've experienced for the first four or five races is likely what they're going to experience for the, the remainder of the calendar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a situation that they're not used to being in. I mean, it's one thing to sort of defend the the, the championship leading, but uh, I mean, the lead that Max and Red Bull has is is very very small. It ranges from one to four points, depending which which championship it is. I think uh, uh, Max has a four point lead over Lewis and the drivers, and I think Red Bull has a single point lead in the constructors. So it's it's not like this is uh, some big hole they're not going to get out of. But you know, from that uh, you know from that point of view. This isn't really familiar territory. I mean, I know if you kind of go back a couple of years when Ferrari was more competitive, when when, when Vettel was kind of the guy that was really pushing Hamilton, we, we'd seen this uh, before. But I mean, certainly since 2018, I don't want to say that they've uh, they've had it easy because there's nothing easy about Formula One, even when you're winning. But it's it, it's a little bit different. They're being pushed uh, at every corner, at every track, on every weekend now. And uh, you know, after a disastrous weekend, they're they're probably a lot of them are thinking hey what the heck is going on here this this is something that we're just not used to like what do we do and i think it's uh, just a lot of uh, frustration boiling over and speaking of frustration boiling over i think that's our cue to go into another break here when we come back we're going to talk about the aforementioned ferrari so we'll do that in just a moment so we'll catch you guys on the flip side All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And uh, Mattia Bonato, Ferrari team principal, is uh, is showing Charles Leclerc a lot of love and uh, being very you know complimentary about him after uh, Charles stuck around for the entire race and then uh, went to go and cheer on his teammate Carla Sainz, who uh, brought uh, the remaining Ferrari home for a P two, and. Um, yeah, you know, I think this is. I think it's a. I think it's a classy move on uh, on both of them. I think it's very sporting. Charles could have just bailed and gone and gone home and sulked or sat in the motorhome or whatever after another disastrous uh, weekend at his home Grand Prix, but he stuck around, and I, I think it shows uh, a lot of how um, Charles is invested in the team. He's just not there for himself. Obviously, he's there to race. He's obviously there to win, but I think it shows a great level of uh, maturity that he can put those interests to one side stick with the team and then go and celebrate with the team and and recognize his teammates accomplishment because it was an important uh, result for them an important result uh, for for Carlos and I think that uh, Charles is a big enough of a person to recognize that and uh, realize okay my my chance is going to come but I'm not going to let my bad weekend overshadow everything and 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 enjoy and revel in the moment and and be there for my teammate which I think is a cool thing. So first of all credit to us because we talked about this on last Sunday's podcast we were, we were. There you go, Mattia Bonato. He's he's a fan of the podcast. He heard that. He really. Hey, Mark and Mark are talking about it. I got to say something. I, w- I would like to think that's the case. But at the same time, if the team <laughs> principal of Ferrari has to listen to our podcast to uh, assess assess the uh, the conduct of his own drivers, that's a problem. I think one thing I would share for our <laughs> listeners is what we're talking about. The fact that you know he went and he was at the podium and he cheered on his <clears throat> teammate and he celebrated his victory. 
that all may seem logical. And you might be wondering, why are we even acknowledging this? Shouldn't this just be how a team operates? I think it's really important to understand that within a lot of Formula One teams, those two drivers function in two separate bubbles. And we were talking about this with some of our Twitter listeners this week about the fact, because somebody had asked us great questions, like, well, do the drivers share mechanics? And like, well, no. I mean, the mechanics will sometimes share resources. And if there's a big crash, they'll they'll pool their resources and they'll work together overnight to get a car back on the track. But the drivers really function in their own bubbles. They have their own race engineer. They have their own team of mechanics. And oftentimes, they're dueling to become that principal alpha driver or they're fighting to keep their jobs ultimately. And oftentimes they're competing with each other as much as they are with any other driver on the track. So never take for granted when the two drivers have really good chemistry. That's a good thing because as often as we see two drivers with good chemistry, we see two drivers with horrendous chemistry. And that's probably more Mm -hmm. common in the annals of Formula One history. So this is very, very cool. I think that the one thought I had on this one is ultimately... Charles really doesn't have anyone to be upset with him with other than himself for the outcome at Monaco. He put himself in a position to be on the front row to qualify in the top four, the top five, potentially on the front row. But I think ultimately he probably wasn't going to secure that if qualifying had been red flagged, but he put himself in a good position. Ultimately, it was he that hit the barrier. It was he that caused the damage to his car. And I think we can all now fairly assess that the damage to the drive shaft was a result of that impact. That's his fault, not the team's fault. There's no reasonable expectation that the team could have understood that that impact could have damaged the drive shaft. And even if they did, there was no way for them to test it without the car going on the track. So ultimately, the accident was his fault, nobody else's. But I think that said, it's still nice that, hey, he could suck it up. That's my fault. I'm going to be here to support my team and support my teammate. And as hard as it may have been for him to go to that podium celebration, knowing that potentially it should have been him up there or up there with his teammate, Mm -hmm. I still think it was really cool to see. And I think it speaks to the culture that this team is building. Because if you look back at 2017, 18, 19, I'm not sure what the chemistry was, especially when you had Kimi Raikkonen as his driver, great driver. Um, He's, interesting from a personality perspective. He's not a big culture guy. And I think what we ultimately saw with Seb and Charles Leclerc was a complete breakdown in team culture across the organization. So I think to see the drivers, because the drivers are the forefront of whatever chemistry and culture exists within the factory and that organization, I think this is a really good sign for Ferrari. You know, it's very interesting uh, too. And uh, I'm starting to wonder now, just when you were talking there, that uh, if this maybe also goes to show and demonstrate maybe the the, the character and the personality of Carlos Sainz, because if you look at the last couple of years, the bromance that he had with Lando, I mean, they really, really got on well as teammates at uh, at McLaren. And now you see, I mean, he's paired up with another young driver, you know, another alpha dog. uh, Like, I mean, Lando's a very good driver. And uh, they were obviously competing the two of them at McLaren, and then you know, he's he's, he's uh, partnered up now with one of the top dogs in Formula One with Charles Leclerc, and there seems to be pretty good chemistry uh, between the two of them. So I just wonder really how much of that uh, just as a testament to, uh, to to Carlos Sainz that you know he's there, he's there to race as well, but you know he's he's a good team guy as well, and it seems 
so far that he, he's uh, had some pretty solid relationships with his uh, teammates when when you so you know, rightly pointed out that when you go back in Formula One over the history, there's a lot of the Hamiltons and Rosbergs, exactly. the Senna's and Prosts exactly. that, uh, you know, w- which we, we kind of like to talk about because it's a little bit juicier because, you know, they're, they're literally at each other's throats and, uh, you know, there's been incidents off the track and on the track and things like that. But, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, it, it is good to see that uh, the, these guys working together and you have to think that when they're you know that that they are getting on well together that the chemistry and the atmosphere within the team and within the garage is going to be better and ultimately if uh, if everybody's um, you know all feeling all warm and fuzzy inside that that <laughs> that that's got to be a good thing for the team as well okay so let's uh yeah let, let's go there now because uh, you you talked about it a long time ago. I think we should come back. But Total Wolf team principal at Mercedes says that if the the, the bendy flexible wing thing goes on, he will la- lead a protest uh, at Baku if uh, the teams are still ar- allowed to run them. I mean, they got new rules coming in that will take effect uh, for for the French Grand Prix. But you know that's still a little ways out. I mean, when when is France beginning of July or thereabouts? So, I mean, uh, technically these uh, teams uh, that are running the bendy wings can still run them for. A for a couple of uh, you know, a couple more races uh, before these uh, new rules uh, come to it uh, into effect, and. I was kind of hoping after last year, the rolling protests that we saw from a number of teams regarding the racing points, uh, first of all, the, the, the pink Mercedes thing, and then ultimately on the brake ducts, which they eventually got nailed for. I was kind of hoping that, uh, that there would be no kind of rolling protests because this kind of like I so first of all I, I completely understand the frustration that uh, that total wolf might be uh, feeling and why some teams that are not running the bendy wings would be uh, be upset about it but I I can I on the on the same time I kind of hate these things because I'm not really a big fan of the you know the the political side of uh, formula 1 I'm trying to think of words that are appropriate for a podcast. Put it this way, I I very (laughs) much agree with you. I think not only are these disputes incredibly petty, but they are prone to turning people off the sport. You know, I I think one of the criticisms we see of football a lot of the time is, you know, the players are flopping around and we see the same criticism of the NBA. The players are flopping around. That's a bad look for the sport. And so are these type of disputes ultimately. And I don't necessarily blame the teams for initiating them because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. these disputes could lead to penalties, which could help them accumulate more championship points, which could help them win titles and to cash in on prize money. So I get it from the team's perspective. I think my criticism is that the FIA needs to find a better, more effective, more rapid way of addressing concerns when they come up. So this whole bendy wing, the bendy gate, wing gate, flex gate, whatever you want to call it, this has now been on our radar for the better part of a month. We've been talking about this for a month. And if we've been talking about it for a month, the teams and the drivers and the engineers and everyone involved with the sport have probably known about it since winter testing. But it's going to take till the French Grand Prix until the FIA can start testing these wings. That's that's nonsense. And from Toto's perspective, I get the frustration because when you go into Baku, Baku is a six kilometer, 20 turn circuit with the basically the longest straight in, in the championship cars will hit 360 to 380 kilometers an hour on that straight. 
No cars benefit more on that track than the Red Bulls will because of the flexi wing. So I get it from Mercedes perspective is that if they can pick up a few tenths of a second on every single lap because of the bendy wing, because of that long straight, that's going to put them in a really advantageous position to win that race or be ultra competitive in that race. So I get it. But on the other hand, it's just such a garbage, petty, dramatic look to the sport. Like I don't want the discussion of the sport to be dominated by these disputes every single weekend. And you make that great point. Like Mm -hmm. so much of last year was dominated by the break duck saga with racing point. Like nobody wants to talk about carbon fiber break ducks for four or five weeks. And I think (laughs) the sport also needs to be very, very conscious that, you know, we've got this huge new base of fans. We want to show them the good stuff and we want to be talking about the good stuff. We don't want to be talking about these petty protests. And I think ultimately it's now on Formula One and it's on the FIA to make sure if these things come up. They need to be able to address them in a much more rapid fashion. It can't take six weeks to come up with this new test. You know, if it's an issue, you need to be able to identify it or plan for it in advance so you can deploy more rapid testing. Like we hear you, we're adjusting, we're good. Or alternatively, hey, it is what it is. It's in the regulations or it's not covered by the sporting regulations. We'll address it in the off season. Don't let these things simmer because it just causes a distraction. And then it throws into question the championship, right? Like ultimately if, if Red Bull does really well in Baku and they take two podium positions and they accumulate a bunch of championship Mm -hmm. points, and then ultimately they do have to change their wing because it's not compliant with the new testing. It throws into question the credibility of the championship. Well, for six races, Red Bull got to race with this floppy wing that they had to change, but they got to keep all those like it just it's really 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 messy and i think you know what i'm gonna leave it there because i'm getting worked up but i will pass it back to you (laughs) yeah no i completely agree with uh, everything you say i mean it's just like it it brings the sport into a focus that uh, you know people don't really want to talk about uh, all the time it's like maybe like the code in hockey right or like uh, you know or like you were talking earlier i mean you brought up barry bonds i mean who really wants to talk about like the the, the scandal with like barry bonds mark mcguire and like all, all the, the the scandal like uh you know like the steroid era and you know i mean at, at the time it was great to watch when these guys were going for the home run records and things like that and then it comes up afterwards okay they you know they were you know <laughs> they were doping all these things and it really dragged the sport down and brought it to a place that nobody really wanted to address and they wanted to talk about I mean, this is obviously not quite as uh, shady and stuff like that. I mean, the thing is, okay, you have the technical regulations. They, you know, some teams are obviously operating in this gray area. I just don't understand. Well, I understand that it's going to take them X number of weeks or races before they can implement specific testing for it. But it's just like when it's like when it when it's so obvious that you can see it like an in-car camera. Why do you have to wait from like the end of the Spanish Grand Prix or Portugal to to France two months later to implement this testing when it's it's so obvious that anybody with like you know spatial perception and uh, you know the difference between like a collapsing curvy wing and a straight wing that you know it should be obvious that uh, you know if you implement okay these flexi wings are out you have to have something that's a more rigid material that we're going to be testing from there but you know there's other ways that we can uh, you know we can police it in the meantime because it just distracts from the sport and um, it, it takes away from what the true conversation should be and if there's a gray area 
you know, make it black and white, just address it immediately. Or just uh, like you say, just uh, it is what it is. And we'll dress it in the off season, which obviously is just going to lead to more drama. And now I'm starting to work myself up. So we're going to take one final break because there's a bunch of McLaren stories I want to talk about before the end of the show. And we'll do that in just a moment. So uh, don't go away with us. All right. Well, welcome back. And uh, bad news if you're a fan of uh, McLaren, but the uh, the Gulf Oil special livery that they had for Monaco, according to team principal uh, Andreas Seidel, it is only going to be a one-off uh, for now. But uh, I, I think that's just in general that uh, since they went back to that papaya color that's more traditionally McLaren colors a couple of years ago, I think it was a, a great move. But the you know the way that they did up that special livery for Monaco, I think it just uh, took it to uh, another level. I think they should uh, seriously rethink, uh, you know, using that as that uh, as as their full time livery going forward. I mean, it looked like, uh, well, I mean, it did look like a million bucks because it probably cost a million bucks to paint the cars up like that. Well, maybe not, but uh, certainly they looked uh, really, really good. Uh, sticking with uh, McLaren, uh, apparently they were not expecting uh, podium style pace, and this was also kind of uh, it couples into another story that. Uh, Norris really made his, uh, you know, his engineers uh, nervous because he got some track limits uh, warnings, which, you know, track limits have been another saga we've been talking about uh, all season long. But uh, again, uh, McLaren, Lando looking uh, pretty good. And um, it'll be great to see if he can carry this, uh, carry this on and uh, really stay where he is in the championship. But if uh, McLaren can uh, build on the uh, success that they've had uh, last year, I mean, they've kind of been, I don't want to say being given an artificial boost in the fact that some of their rivals like uh, Ferrari, I mean, they've come out and said that, uh, you know, we're, we're focusing almost 100% on our car for 2022. So that maybe gives a slight edge to McLaren, who is going to develop this car a little bit longer this year before they switch to, to next year. But I mean, they're they're doing the right things. Uh, and I'm still continually impressed, not only with, uh, with Lando, but also with the team, considering where they were four or five years ago. And how they've, uh, I, I mean, they're not challenging for wins, but they're, you know, semi-regulars on the podium, which I think is uh, wonderful. And uh, they've uh, come back from the abyss to relative competitiveness in a fairly short amount of time. And I think they should really be acknowledged and given some props for that. It's tough, right? And you make a really good point about how much of their success this season is a byproduct or a downstream effect of the fact that some of the heavyweight teams have had some challenges. I think ultimately Bottas probably finishes on the podium in Monaco, if not for that mishap in the garage. But again, I don't want to... I don't want to downplay their successes this year because reliability and mistakes and punctures and DNFs and reliability, like that's all part of Formula One. We shouldn't, we shouldn't discount necessarily the fact that somebody was on the podium because there was a miscue in the pit or because somebody got a puncture. Like these are just the realities of Formula One. And as much as Valtteri Bottas or Lewis Hamilton might be a victim of a reliability issue, so might a driver on any other team. So I don't think we should downplay that, but the circumstances could be very different. That said, I think ultimately had as been a really good start. And ultimately, you know, Lando Norris has a couple of podiums. And even when we talk and criticize Daniel Ricardo's performance so far, he still finished in the points in four of his first five races. That's not terrible necessarily. And I know that he's probably disappointed with his performance. And I think the team probably is as well, but his performance hasn't been 
terrible, terrible. I think the only real caution that I would have here is if you look at the race classification for for Monaco, you know, Max Verstappen finished first. Carlos Sainz was a solid nine seconds behind him. Lando Norris was 20 seconds off the pace in that race. Sergio Perez was about a second behind that. So they might be scoring some podiums, but I still don't think that they're in a position where they're going to compete reliably with Red Bull and Mercedes on any given weekend. But that said, I think he's still going to score a flurry of podiums this year. And if there's a wet weekend or if there's contact in a race between Lewis and Max, there's could always be a, there could always be a victory waiting for him. And I think I wouldn't be surprised to see one this year, but I just, it's tough because on the one hand, I want to be conservative with his performance so far and that there were some lucky breaks, but on the other hand, that's just, that's just formula one. That kind of stuff happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, well, I, I'm a little bit distracted, I must admit, because I just realized, once again, you're wearing F1-branded merch, which you said you'd never do again, and you've been wearing like that same hat for the past month. But uh, anyways, you, know, you make some... Uh, <laughs> I, I should really make fun of you uh, like halfway through a show. But anyways, um, yeah, I think you make uh, some uh, some really good... Well, no, put it back on. <laughs> uh, you know, you do raise some uh, really, really good points uh, about, uh, you know, just uh, the, the difference uh, where you had uh, Carlos behind uh, Max and then Lando 20 seconds uh, behind. I mean, I think that the the MC305M is a much better car or it, it's you know, definitely a better car than they, they had a couple of years ago. Obviously, running that Mercedes power, they got basically the best uh, engine in Formula One in the back of that car. So they're in a, in a very, very good uh, spot. So the thing is, how close are they going to be on, say, some of these uh, power circuits? Where are they going to be in Monza or Spa like some, or, or Silverstone, like some some of these really, really fast uh, circuits? Or even next week in uh, Baku, which, uh, you know, a, a city track. But like you say, you've got that, uh, you, you know, that very long straightaway, the longest uh, in Formula One where they're, you know, topping out of what, about 220 miles an hour or something ridiculous like that. So that will be interesting to see what sort of, uh, you know, where they kind of filter in there. But uh, certainly I think that uh, on any given day, uh, when, the, when the circumstances are right, like we saw at Monaco, that uh, that there are points and podiums uh, there for, for the taking. And I think that Lando is now uh, specifically, I, I think he's really well ingrained in that team. I think uh, with having, you know, a couple of seasons under his belt, uh, you know, he's, he's gone through that, that, that rookie season a couple of years ago. I mean, he's now, uh, well, I mean, he's, he, he's now, uh, you know, an experienced Formula One drive and um, I think that the points are there. I mean, he, he's, I, I think not only is he very experienced, I think he's a, he's a very, very good Formula One driver. It's just going to be interesting to see where those results come. Like you say, if there's rain, if, uh, you know, may, maybe some of these uh, circuits uh, that, uh, well, Monaco's a little bit uh, unique in and of, uh, of itself, but it'll be interesting when we sit down at the end of the year and we talk about McLaren, we talk about Lando Norris, and we talk about Danny Ricardo and the season that they had, and the results that they compiled by the end of the year, what sort of tracks and where did those uh, those good results come from? And what were the circumstances that uh, that led to it? Because next week is going to be an interesting one. And then again, how are they going to match up against uh, some of these other teams that uh, you know you would consider them to be more on a sort of a similar footing, like your Ferraris, maybe? 
I'd still say that they're a little bit ahead of Alpine, but that's kind of the teams that they'd be be, be uh, mixing up with. But it kind of uh, sort of segues in nicely to a question that we had from from uh, Vincent uh, in the email. He was asking uh, just about uh, Lando and about uh, Ricardo, and uh, I think we did address this uh, to a certain extent uh, about a week ago. But uh, he says yeah, he, he's just uh, you know being straight up and saying that he's a big fanboy of Lando, but he's also um, you know he was talking about uh, some of the the issues that uh, that Ricardo was having and uh, Andreas Seidel was uh, saying that um, that this car requires what he calls a you know a special driving style, which is kind of hurting Danny Ricardo at the moment. Um, anyways, yeah, Seidel had to say specifically, "quote I think if you look back since the beginning of the season, we have made good steps forward with him. But in order to drive our car fast at the moment, you need a special driving style, which is not natural for Daniel. That is why it's not so easy for him to get the laps in and extract the the performance. We simply have to keep working together now as one team." stay calm keep analyzing and keep learning and then there are two things which is him further adapting to our car because obviously he sees that the potential that is there which i think is a positive thing for him to see that and then we can pull it off then at the same time we will look at the team side as well and what we can do in order to get him on the car side to give him back his natural feeling which you need to go fast end quote so i think that's a a really interesting um, way that uh, that that he's kind of summed it up i mean he hasn't specifically admitted what uh, makes uh, that car so special in the way that uh, you know that that it needs to be handled clearly lando has it figured out compared to uh, ricardo and um, i think that danny ricardo is far too good of a formula one driver that uh, that he won't figure it out at some point but it's uh, i think as as if, if you kind of read between the lines and what andreas is saying there i think it's it's both i, I think it's ricardo and the team kind of meeting somewhere in the middle they have to kind of give him more of the feel back in the car that he's used to and fits his uh, style but at the same time ricardo is going to have to adapt his style to a certain degree to try and you know wrestle the, the, the this car and, and be able to do what lando's being able to do with it because you know if they're if they're um, both being able to extract the same kind of performance out on the car out of that car i'd be interested to see how that delta closes and how these two would uh, match up uh on an equal, equal this is footing. This perfect segue to a question that we got on Twitter from at, at Broncos Elite, one of our listeners from Denver, Colorado, who's a big fan of all sports in that city, especially the Broncos, if you visit his Twitter feed. You, you think? He asked this awesome <laughs> question, and it ties in exactly to what we're talking about here. And I promised that we'd answer it on Monday, but I think this is a better fit. And I quote, as a McLaren fan, I feel... And it's funny because the Broncos are orange and McLaren's orange. I wonder if there's a connection there. But And I quote, Could as a McLaren be. fan, I feel as though Lando Norris is, weirdly enough, being overshadowed by Ricardo. It's always, good job, Norris, but why is Daniel underachieving? He needs more love from the media. Am I overreacting? If you do a Monday podcast, would love to hear more about the third place, man. Thanks. It's an interesting point, right? Because I think if you look at Lando, one, we've probably talked about Ricardo as much as we have Lando, despite the fact that Lando is the one scoring the podiums. Mm-hmm. And when we have spoken about Lando, especially me, I've downplayed some of his performances based more on circumstance. But ultimately, Lando has done nothing wrong. He stepped foot right in every one. He's cashed in on all the points that are available. He's got two podiums. I think he is possibly one of the most talented young drivers in the sport. I'll be very honest. If I was buying stock in a driver today, I would be buying stock in Lando over George Russell. 
Lando's a known quantity. George Russell isn't. And obviously he he showed some flashes, some flourishes that one mm-hmm. weekend when he got to drive the Mercedes car in Bahrain. But I would also expect most drivers in the circuit to do what he did with that car. And I still think, and you know, one of our other listeners at Dead Randy reached out to me, um, also a close friend, by the way, but he'd also reached out and made the same <laughs> comment that, you know, yeah, great. He put in a great performance in that car. But what driver wouldn't put in that performance with that car ultimately? So I think it was less a credit to George's capabilities, but more just a reflection of the fact that Valtteri and Lewis are blessed with phenomenal machinery. But I think his point's a really good one, which is, unfortunately, Lando's performance this year and his results are being overshadowed by the struggles that Ricardo's been having. You know, I, ju- I just thought of something uh, what you were just talking about there that I find extremely fascinating. When you, when you look at some of these guys that uh, when, when they switch teams, they're driving different cars, everybody's sort of talking about, you know, the the, the learning curve that uh, that is taking to learn the new car, get used to it. I mean, Ricardo's having his issues, Seb's having his issues with the Aston Martin, Checo's obviously had some issues with the Red Bull. When we've seen other people, you know, well, I mean, we've only seen um, George Russell get into that uh, Mercedes, but you never really hear the Mercedes guys complain about it's a hard car to learn. I mean, George obviously um, didn't have uh, very many issues. I mean, sort of right out of the box, it seems that that Mercedes, whatever year it is, it just seems to be it must be more forgiving than some of these cars because I mean w- when we're just going back and talking about Danny Ricardo there it seems that some of the issues that he's having uh, to to get uh, out of the car very nuanced very specific and, and you know ultimately a little bit sort of tantalizing and all, just a little bit out of grasp to really maximize the performance of that car but that's something that we've never really heard about the 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 uh, the, the, the Mercedes I guess to an extent maybe the Ferrari when they were a little bit more competitive but I'm going to put an asterisk beside that because there, there's obviously a lot of question marks as to why they were so competitive, uh, you know, for 2019 and you know perhaps uh, before that. So it's just kind of an interesting, interesting thing. And then also what you were saying about buying stock in Lando because that goes back to the email from Vincent and uh, one of the things that uh, he said he says I would love to hear your reason uh, analyzing why Lando seems so fast, so constant now. And if we're seeing the birth of a new world champion that uh, leveled uh, driver before our eyes. And I, I, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, he certainly is showing a lot of those indicators that, uh, you know, that uh, that he is a very special driver. I don't know if I would jump to that conclusion just yet, but I think that uh, he is an exceptionally talented Formula One driver. I mean, n- I don't know. Maybe this comes back to um, maybe downplaying him a little bit and, and maybe being a little bit uh, harsher on him than perhaps, uh, you know, is fair, like uh, like you're just uh, talking about yourself. But uh, it would be interesting to see what, uh, you know, what this guy could achieve given, uh, you know, a very good, uh, I mean, he's got a good car, but it's not a great car. I mean, it might uh, get him some podiums, like you said a little bit earlier, uh, given the circumstances, he might, uh, you know, sneak in a win and, uh, you know, if the conditions are are just right. I mean, it's very possible if it, if it rained or there's safety cars or something like that. I mean, just ask uh, Pierre Gasly last year, right? In uh, as one example, but uh, I, I think that uh, Lando is a very special, very talented driver, and I would say that uh, all indications are are definitely pointing in, in world champion uh, potential world championship uh, directions. I've Let's just put got it that way. Pieces to add, and I know we've been talking about McLaren for a long time, but last week I downplayed a little bit the new 
was that Lando had signed a new multi-year agreement with McLaren. At the time, I talked about the fact yep. that, well, he doesn't have a lot of leverage. Ultimately, McLaren has all the leverage in that conversation. But the more I've thought about it and the more I've read about that, I almost wonder if it wasn't McLaren that was spooked and possibly spooked by by Mercedes and Total Wolf sniffing around. Like we all know they're going to have a vacant seat this year. Good point. A vacant seat the next year. You know, the the other point being that Lando also now has familiarity with the Mercedes power unit and how it functions. Like it could be a natural transition to that team. And he's a British driver. He's young. He has everything that Mercedes would want from a marketability perspective. He's really great at engaging with young viewers, with young fans. He's on Twitch, he's on social media, all those different kinds of things. Like he could be a great fit for that team. And I almost now wonder in hindsight if Zach Brown wasn't spooked by the prospect that another big team could swoop in and offer money that they don't potentially have. Because ultimately, McLaren's mm-hmm. seen some success this year. They are still in a vulnerable position financially because they weren't able to cash in on any championship points last year in a meaningful way because there wasn't as much to offer because of the COVID situation, et cetera, that maybe he was spooked. The only other thing I'll add as well, and we didn't talk about this earlier, but there were some stories this week that McLaren is actually considering building a new chassis for Daniel Ricciardo. And this is, this is about as drastic a move as a team can have when you ultimately say, the car could be broken and that's what's driving these poor results. And in the past, what we've seen teams do is they'll say, Hey, our 2019 car, and we saw this in 2019 with Haas that they thought that one of their cars in the early part of the season was so fundamentally broken. They actually brought back the 2018 car thinking that might improve performance in the case of McLaren. They can't do that because the 2020 car was built around a Renault power unit. So they can't lean back, but they could conceivably scrap the current chassis and build a brand new one from the ground up, hoping that maybe there's something fundamentally hmm. flawed with that chassis, which is causing some of the struggles that Daniel Ricardo is having. But that is an incredibly drastic, move and something we rarely ever see in formula one but at least it's being reported whether there's any legitimacy to that or not i don't know yeah interesting i mean like you say that would be a a real drastic move especially in this day and age you know we're in the cost cap era now i mean it's not like years gone by where they had uh, you know you go and smash up your car in practice or qualifying you can jump into your t car and go back out there even though it's not quite uh, dialed in uh, as as your race car was you had a spare car to race i mean it would be a very very big deal to to go and do that hey mark i just realized we're already pushing that 90 minutes here uh is there anything else we want to talk about or are we going to let off uh, everybody here a little bit easy and uh let them get on with their lives you know what i've got a moto gp corner but i think this one can wait till next week okay that's good because i i actually didn't bring the jingle tonight so that's uh (laughs) i'm just kidding i got it here i i wouldn't do that after you know shutting you down a couple of times earlier in the year i did i didn't want to be uh you know, make it a, a you know, recurring thing and then, you know, kind of have, I, I'm trying to be more like Carlos Sainz. I'm uh, trying to finally, be a good teammate. Finally. You could learn a few things from Carlos <laughs> Sainz and Charles Leclerc. And just know I spent $9 to license that motorbike sound and that jingle. $9. That's some pretty big coin for a MotoGP corner jingle. Especially on a podcast, uh, a podcast like this that uh, you know is not really known for having uh, you know a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of uh, financial oomph to uh, really take it to, to where we go. So you know we'll we'll start up a a Kickstarter for you. We'll we'll get that nine no, bucks back sorry. for you and uh, maybe a little a bit on top. Kickstarter, it's because we need to get you a new webcam. Hey, you know, I'm actually really happy. Well, you know, I, I needed like to, to find a way to get like that serial connector into a USB <laughs> port, you know, because it's, you know, it's, 
Yeah, I'm just kidding. You know, it's, it's not my 1997 Logitech like you were Take bugging down. me about. But it was funny. You know, when, when I bought this laptop a couple of years ago, I kind of cheaped out on one that didn't have like the you know really fancy like webcam because I figured I'm not going to need a, a webcam all the time, so it wasn't really a priority. But hey, here we are, and uh, shame on me for uh, you know letting my uh i guess my uh ancestral cheapskatedness uh, shine through in all its uh, glory but on that note i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get out when the going is good so uh thanks guys for uh bearing with us uh on this uh, sort of this test run uh, tonight hope that the the, the final product comes out if you want to get in touch uh, by all means uh, do so give us a follow on twitter at scuderia f1 pod uh, get in touch uh, slide into our dms say hello or send us a tweet if you want to send us an email scuderia f1 pod at gmail.com and that's a wrap that's it. We'll be back for Mailbag Monday in a couple of days. Until then, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye for now.